0: Hello, everyone. Welcome, Dr. Dina Dye here. I'm kind of leading the charge with uh, Ryan White. Say hi, Ryan.
1: Hey, everyone.
0: So this is the second in our series, shifting your paradigm, uh, the parables. So we hope that you'll go back and listen to the first session because it's very important. It really lays the foundation for understanding the parables and looking at them from a, a different perspective. So. Please go back and uh, review. You can certainly hear it on my website, Foundations in Torah. You can go to, uh, now where will they hear it from you, Ryan? <laughs> it Somewhere?
1: Will, <laughs> it will be on my website. I haven't put it up there yet. But okay. uh, also I'm going to get it on a either on my Conversations with the Bible podcast show program or create a new one i gotta see i don't want to be charged another 15 dollars a month but we'll get it somehow on podcast because i know that's how a lot of people enjoy to listen as through podcasting apps
0: yeah yeah so look for that and if, in the meantime you can go to foundations and torah and you'll uh, you'll see it'll say uh, i think i put it under returning to eden which is kind of my podcast show and it will be the very last episode aired and so just look for shifting your paradigm, the parables. So we're going to get into it now. Ryan and I are sort of taking a different parable to discuss and, you know, we'll we'll make commentary on it. And we'll go fairly slowly because we'll probably only be able to talk uh, reasonably about two parables this week. Of course, some of the parables are quite a bit shorter, but we picked the long ones. (laughs) (laughs) Of
1: course. Those are the fun ones, right?
0: (laughs) Exactly. So uh, I guess I'll just start with one of my favorite parables, which is from Matthew 21, uh, 33 through 35. You'll see it in Mark 12 and Luke 20. And of course, with the Gospels, each of the parable, they're not exactly the same. We know that there's usually some sort of element in there that's different. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's important to, uh, and I'm not going to really do that this time, but it's important to sit down and look at what is different about them and what is similar, because that's going to give you some some more uh, interesting information. Yeah,
1: my, I was going to say with, with the one that you're you're doing this week, it was interesting because my I was actually while you were talking, I was l- trying to look for it and I can't find it. But my professor had me. W- what we did is we took a, a, like on a word document and had four separate columns, and we compared the the actual text of uh you know the the passage and you know looked at the differences and it's interesting how you have different new testament authors taking that same parable and including certain aspects and and not including certain aspects because they're while it has you know this this overall meaning they're using it in different ways to to illustrate different points
0: yeah exactly and you know, that's a a key element in understanding the scriptures. So what we're trying to focus in on is what is the writer communicating? What is the writer's interpretation about this? Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: not so much the the information and the historical information per se, but but the writer has taken a slant. The the writer's trying to communicate to us something about what he wants to say, so just uh, bear that in mind so this uh the parable of the vineyard and of course we all know that israel is you know has been compared to the vineyard out of isaiah 5 which i'll mention in just a second so let me just very briefly run through this as fast as i'm able (laughs) so you have a master and just think king on that and household is going to be his you know the environment of the temple or you know where the king's palace is so he planted a vineyard which is very normal in the ancient world that a king would have a vineyard attached to his uh, his compound. So he put a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, which is kind of interesting, and built a tower. And then he set out to lease it to some tenant farmers, of course, for them to take care of it, and he went on a journey. So now it's harvest time, fruits about to be harvested, and the master, the king, sends his servants to the tenants to collect the, the fruit, the harvest. And what do the tenants do? They grab the servants, they beat them up, they kill them, stone them, all that. So now the master, the king, sends other servants, uh, even more than he did the first time around. And they did exactly the same thing. So third time around, he sends his son because he says, surely they'll respect my son. Now, thinking that the son is going to be heir to the throne, that's an important thought there. So now the tenants see the son. And they say, oh, this is the heir, so let's kill him so we can get the inheritance. So they grab him, they throw him out of the vineyard, and they kill him. And uh, so the master of the vineyard comes, and he says, well, what, you know, what am I going to do with these tenants? Um, I'm going to bring these guys to a miserable end. And he will lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him uh, his proper share of the fruit and it goes on from there which uh, we won't really talk about too much but it you can't uh, so we have the 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 parable sandwiched in there we we it's important once again to get the context of the chapter and really of the book but yeshua goes on to say that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone that the kingdom of god will be taken away from you and given to people producing fruit so this is kind of a summary if you will of what justice happens so you can't you can't ignore this section but then he says whoever falls on this stone will be shattered and the one who it falls on will be crushed so we end the chapter with the Kohanim uh, the, pre, uh, the Pharisees hearing this realize ding 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 he's talking about them mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know once again what is it's Yeshua is railing against the Pharisees because of their corruption and so you see the corruption really, in this parable. So, oh, go ahead.
1: Well, I, I was going to say, you know, we've we've kind of talked about this already, too, uh, in the first one, but we, we have to look at what is the context that this parable is set within. And you see, you know, this, this whole chapter is about Yeshua enters the temple. And actually, I don't think Matthew includes it here, but some of the other Gospels will include it as well that he first inspects the the fig tree he enters the temple and inspects the temple and cleanses the temple and then he comes out and he curses the fig tree and then you know obviously this this is going to generate questions so they have his authority being questioned and as part of that he tells this parable so we see you know the the audience to this uh this parable are these these temple authorities these pharisees these people who have uh been in power in Jerusalem up until this point in time
0: yeah no and that's that's an important point again we, we you know we constantly reiterate the importance of context so uh just as an aside uh, typically you have in uh, I've talked about this extensively but trees uh, represented kings so the fig tree in the scriptures really speaking of the kings of Judah so, you know, and of course where was the throne? The throne would be in the temple. This is where the king would sit. Of course he does have a palace, not negating that. And interesting too that we have from Micah 4:4, 4, 4, you know, the 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 picture of the messianic kingdom one who's sitting under his vine and his fig tree. And you know, what he's saying is that this place where these, you know, the Pharisees and where the 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 not legitimate king, if you will, and that would probably be the high priest in that environment. They're, they're not legitimate, and they have corrupted that environment and that environment representing, of course, the temple and the vineyard.
1: Yeah, you think about how much people are upset about this this current election, and imagine how it would be when the high priest was supposed to be chosen by God, but now instead of being chosen by God, he's chosen by Rome. Oftentimes, right. based on the person who will, uh, you know, basically show the most loyalty towards the Roman government and the Rome, or or you know, in Herod's day and time, uh, who will show the most authority to the the uh, the kingship, not the human kingship, not the most, uh, you know, reverence towards God.
0: Yeah. No. I mean, exactly. So again, the context to, um, I, So as I'm writing, you know, my new, I'm working on the book about Noah, and of course, what does he do when he comes off the ark? Uh, what the first thing he does is he plants a vineyard. And so we find that ki- kingship language is really related to agriculture. And we, we talked about that quite a bit last time, so I won't go mm-hmm. into that, but uh, it's important to know that king uh, vineyards are, were related to kingship and nobility, okay? So not everybody had a vineyard. It's not no. like you live in the United States. In whatever state you want, you can just go plant a vineyard. It didn't didn't work that way, so the the whole concept of viticulture was very important on that ancient uh, ancient community. So uh, in the ancient world, of course, uh, early on they they didn't really have vineyards as they were nomadic. So once they established themselves and settled somewhere, that's when they would start planting vineyards, and it would take the vines would take many many years to produce. So the the earliest viticulture we find back in around uh, 3500 BCE, in an area called uh, Urartu, which is uh, modern day Armenia, and mm. right at the foot of uh, the of uh, Mount Ararat is something called Lake Van, V-A-N, which it turns out was the basically where viticulture originated, and happens to be the best. Uh, uh, grape growing uh, on the plant on planet Earth, which I thought was, isn't that, I mean, of course, you know, that's, there's not a reason that Noah landed on top of Mount Ararat. (laughs) So that region was um, very, uh, very important for wine production. So early on, you know, when they, it took a fair amount of land, you know, to cultivate the vines, and it would take initially it would take about four to five years to get uh, the the first harvest. So that's quite a bit of work just to get the first harvest. Mm -hmm. And they say up to in that time, now not now with all of our modern ways of of doing things, but at that time it took nearly 10 years to get a full harvest. Hmm. And when you think about the life expectancy, which was 35 to 40 years, you just spent a third of your life, right? Yeah. (laughs) Getting your first harvest. (laughs) So it was the case that the first time Vintner was the one uh, who, who, you know, who took it on the chin, He, he invested all of the time and energy for the vineyard. The later Vintners that came along didn't have to wait so long. So the planting was done by the, you know, original Vintner. Hmm. And it was, in fact, done for the purpose of future generations. And the inheritors, of course, would be the sons. So I found that pretty fascinating.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you know, especially considering, you know, when you tie this into Isaiah uh, 5, verse 7, the vineyard yeah. of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah is pleasant planting. And, and that's one of those things that I've really just, it, it's really hit me. Uh, lately, is just how much the the scripture is is not a you know that you know we we talk about how great the Torah is and going back to the Torah, but the Torah is is like that planting of a vineyard, right? It's 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 the start of the good work. It's, right. It's not the the fruition of it.
0: Right. Yeah. It, I mean, generation after generation. So. So the vineyard itself became obviously from Isaiah 5, was a symbol of Israel. But the the vine that was planted in the vineyard was the king, a symbol for the king, and then down the line, his son. And the ones responsible for maintaining the vineyard in that environment, which they call the tenant farmers, would would be the priests, the ones that would mediate between uh, the king and the people. Um, Interesting, in Judges... I think it's Judges nine or six. Never can't remember. With well, the the parable of the trees, and so we have uh, the olive tree mentioned mm. and the vi- and the vine and what in that world what they thought of King David. He was associated with the olive tree, but it was King Solomon who was associated as the vine, mm. and yeah. uh, King and King Saul was the sycamore sycamore fig. So just a, a, an interesting aside there. So the farmer, everything the farmer or the the first time Bintner had in mind was his sons taking, carrying on the family business. And so this uh, uh, vineyards were really what we call a patrimonial legacy mm-hmm. and this passing on this inheritance through the family. So again, we see that in Isaiah chapter five. It was a very expensive investment. So, again, this, you know, the poor did not have vineyards. The commoner did not have vineyards. Now, in Egypt, the vineyard was under the control of the temple, and it was considered a luxury product, so for the pharaoh and his high officials. And in Mesopotamia, which is where this information about uh, you know, Lake Vaughan and, and Ararat area, it was totally restricted to royalty. It was the domain of royalty. So again, the emphasis here was on the production was centered around the king. I, and I think this is very important because this is, the, this is what is being communicated here. And uh, so now, you know, if you go back and read about vineyards in Scripture, hopefully you'll have a little better understanding. Now, I just wanted to, as another aside, you know, there were, we talked last time about how with these, these different parables, that there was a parable that would have been familiar to the people at the time but what Yeshua did is he put a twist on it. Mm-hmm. So the parable that we think is closest to this uh, comes from Sefer Deuteronomy three 3.12, which is the Sefer is basically a commentary by the sages going back to around 300 uh, common era. And so uh, again, let me do this pretty fast, but here's the, the parable that looks the closest but doesn't sound quite like what Yeshua is saying. So it was like a king who owned a field, he gave it over to renters, and the renters began to steal from the owner. So the owner took it from them and gave it to their sons. Now, the sons turned out to be worse than the fathers. So the owner, the king, took it from the sons, and now he gave it to the grandsons. And the grandsons were even worse. So the son, a son was born to the king, and, and he, the king sa- was said to the, all these sons, get off my property. And what they say about this is, this is compared to Abraham. Now, Abraham not being a bad king, being righteous, but he brought forth an evil son, Ishmael. Mm-hmm. And then Isaac, when he was alive, he brought forth an evil son, Esau, who was even worse. But then we have Jacob. And he was not evil, and all his sons were reportedly to, purportedly be, to be honest and worthy. Hmm. And so, you know, God called Jacob a quiet man dwelling in tents, and that Jacob was his allotted heritage. So that, again, takes us back to Isaiah chapter 5. So I thought that was pretty interesting, too. See how that was a, a little different yeah. than what the the parable was.
1: Yeah. And I, I, you know, that's, there's just so much in scripture. I know we just talked about this th- just yesterday. That is, you know, it, God doesn't, is isn't taking stuff that's completely foreign and alien to people and, and, you know, giving them these concepts that they wouldn't connect with. It's, it's taking stuff that they understand, taking stuff that they know and subverting it, changing it to show them, you know, uh, you can understand this, but I'm going to take what you understand and I'm going to shift it just enough so that you understand really what I'm trying to say.
0: Yeah. There's always, <clears throat> there's a dimension that's pushback against the thinking of the day. Mm-hmm. And I think that applies to us as well because we get, you know, bringing it forward, we get so locked into the thinking of the day, that how the culture functions and operates, and yet Yeshua's expecting us to step into that culture and act differently and to be different and to for people to see how he operates differently than kind of the kings of this world there's always that twist and uh you know i think we forg- we fail to remember that that our walk is as we've called quite a bit uh, a subversive walk we're we're pushing back against sort of Uh, No, I don't want to use that word, I guess, but kind of the the way the world functions, we're supposed to be different and we're, you know, and he's showing us in this parable, this is how the world looks differently than what you all think.
1: Yeah, and it's, uh, I I guess I would say another term we could use is countercultural. Uh, you. Know,
0: uh, you can't say that to a hippie.
1: <laughs> but I mean, realistically, <laughs> though, I mean, you know, hippies. Uh, I mean, e- even a lot of the the modern liberal movement, I see using these things, which are the ways that God has chosen, oftentimes in Scripture, to subvert power structures. They're doing those. It's just unfortunately, they're do- they're, they're taking the methodology and they're applying it to things. That are not of God, uh, but that that methodol—I mean, we see just how powerful that methodology is. You know, you look at uh, you know the, these protests recently, where these these people are out there and they're protesting and they're doing all these things wrong, but they they don't come to the point of actual um, violence that will actually provoke a military response, right? They're very mm-hmm. careful in how they do that. Uh, and you, you think about how, uh, you know, a lot of times in scripture, this is what the, these prophets would do. They're provoking, but not to the point where they're actually going into, to battle. It's, it's this, uh, countercultural, this subversive thing. Uh, and I, and I like the word, the term countercultural because a, a lot of times we, we confuse, uh, countercultural and anti-cultural, right? Anti-cultural is the, like, the Qumran community who goes out and, like, flees Babylon, escapes and, like, lives out in the desert, and they ultimately have really no impact uh, on anything other than they just look like a bunch of crazy people. Uh, Right, right. Countercultural, what I would argue, is more like being those Daniels and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where they're in the culture they're they're actually in high levels in the government, even not not saying that everyone has to be in the government, but you know uh they're they're very tightly bound into the culture and yet uh when the culture goes astray they're the ones who are standing up against it. And because they're so ingrained in the culture, uh when they stand against the tide it stands out. And you think about yeah. the the story about Nebuchadnezzar and the statue, and I, I'm just kind of going back to the kids' stories learning those as a kid, you you see the the videos or the pictures or whatever, where everyone's bowing down and your your eyes are immediately drawn to these three or four people who are standing up, right? Yeah. And had they been out on the outskirts of the crowd, maybe they wouldn't have been recognized. But if you put them right in the middle of the crowd, suddenly that standing up makes a huge difference. I think that's what we're called to do is to be in the middle of the crowd standing up when everyone's bowing down. Yeah,
0: I couldn't agree more. And really, as you see, you know, whatever happens as we're we're dating this early September, I mean, December, whatever happens in, you know, ahead uh, politically, the the forces that are, the cultural forces that are dominating us and uh, extending tyranny over us are not going away it doesn't matter who's sitting in the Oval Office yeah. We are going to have to deal with this and so now you you do you're starting to see people stand up but look what they're having to face uh, and, and this isn't anything new but intimidation and violence threat of the, you know their families losing their jobs you know all that sort of thing you know mm-hmm. we have no option we're going to have to stand or you know we will not be identified as any kind of light in the culture. Nobody's going to know the difference, and it's we in the culture that have the only opportunity of changing it. So if we abandon and, and you know head for the hills, then this thing just goes down even faster. Uh, when when you said that I you know I'm not going to tell my whole story, but it reminded me, you know when I was uh, I was at an event. Bent long ago, but uh, they had brought in a statue of Hanuman was a monkey god of India. And a friend and I were there at this festival. And when they brought it out for the unveiling, everybody in the crowd, and there were hundreds, you know, basically bowed down to the statue. Mm. And uh, my friend Jane and I just stood there, <laughs> aghast. And now I'm not a believer yet, looking at each other. And we were the only two people standing. Mm. And I've Often told in my story that I do believe for me that was my that was my line in the sand, that had I crossed over, I wouldn't be where I am today. I wouldn't be who I am. None of it. You know what I mean? I would have sold out to the dark side. So yeah, um, I couldn't help but think of that when you when you were talking. <laughs> but yeah, and so these parables are truly. I mean, I would have to agree. Very countercultural, and as being a former hippie, I can embrace that completely. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, one of the things, what did I, you know, made me forget what I wanted to say. Um, so in the light, in, in this light, of course, the, Yeshua is clearly dealing with the tenant farmers as being the priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. Now, at this time, we're moving into the final stages of the temple standing and things are run by the Sadducees. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, they were not the proper dynastic family, uh, well, the Uh, honest the high priest the high priest family line was not the right right one and I just I just see Yeshua in all of this This, to me is very political statement that he is challenging the corruption and abuse by the Sadduceean priests and one of the things we have to be careful of this was never a story you know cuz you I saw this in mainline Christianity this was never a story about the rejection of Israel and the replacement of the church (laughs) Nothing, whatever to do this this is Yeshua um, you know pushing back against the authorities of the day now we uh, just to kind of finish up here so you can do yours uh, you know we do have in scripture a lot of graphic descriptions talking about uh, about the vineyard you know and trampling the wine press and you know you you (laughs) I see the grapes splattered with like blood I can't Mm. help but always think about I love Lucy running around the vat Um, you know, trampling the grapes, sorry, (laughs) I just always go there, but there's just these very graphic descriptions, you know, of the the angel on the cloud swinging his sickle to harvest the earth, and uh, gathering the, the, the grape cluster from the vineyard of the earth, you know, the grapes are ripe, and they throw them into the great wine press of the wrath of God, and the wine press was stomped outside the city and blood flowed, you know, as high as a horse's bridle. So clearly, I think Yeshua is making the statement that, you know, because of the, the, the people controlling the temple, this thing is coming down. This thing mm-hmm. is going to be destroyed. It, you know, and I think these descriptions in Revelation have everything to do with the future destruction coming to the temple. And so he's using very metaphorical, very graphic Um, visual language to describe it, to describe what's ahead if you don't, you know, repent and turn kind of thing. Yeah. So that's really, I mean, you know, that's in (laughs) uh, 15 minutes. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah. and and, and so that ties in, uh, you know, obviously that's the the parable after, so we're going to back up a little bit and look at the parable of the two sons, which also... Uh, speaks about two sons that he asks that this father, this man, uh, which of course we understand as the, kingdom, the, the king, which represents Yeshua, which represents God himself, of course. And the parable, you know, so they, they had some of their own modern parables with this in, that, that will be brought to mind. But of course, this is going to really bring out Isaiah. And Isaiah was one of the more popular Uh, books of the Bible to be read in that day and time. Isaiah and Daniel were two of the more popular uh, readings of that day and time. And so before we start off with with that one, I want to read really quickly Isaiah 5, verse 7, and bring out a couple things that you may not see in the uh, English here. So Isaiah 5, verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed; for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now, what you don't see in your English, but if you're able to look at the Hebrew lettering here, the word for justice is mishpat, and the word for bloodshed is mishpach. So mishpat with a t, and mishpach with a with a chet. Uh, they're spelled exactly the same in the Hebrew Bible, uh, just one has a a, a a tet and one has a chet, uh ending there. So we, you, you see how uh, this idea of what what can start out as justice can very easily be turned into bloodshed. And then even more interesting, and this is what you know, Isaiah is is poetry, and so you see the poetry again mm-hmm. in this parallel verse here he uh he looked for righteousness the word for righteousness is tzedakah, sadaka, and behold an outcry or, or like it's the crying out of the widow and in yeah. the hebrew it's saaka so it, it it's spelled exactly the same except for instead of a dalet there's an ayin. uh so I, I just love that that kind of that visual imagery that you see there in the hebrew of how justice and righteousness, which is really what what God asks of human beings, that's really the the essence of the Torah is justice and righteousness. And this is why Yeshua can, can say the essence of the Torah can be boiled down to love your neighbor as yourself, right? It's this idea of doing righteousness and justice. And then, and we'll get into the, like the parable of the Good Samaritan later on, but uh, you know that, that whole parable is focused in around not who is my neighbor, but how can I be a good neighbor? How can I do righteousness and justice uh to everyone that I meet and so that's the primary duty of israel and in isaiah 's day uh, he's god's not getting that right that the their their keeping of god's commands in whatever form was not leading to righteousness and justice it was leading to bloodshed and an outcry. And I don't think that that means that they had rejected the Torah in their own minds. We see throughout Scripture a lot of times people think that they're doing the right thing. And, and I, you know, I've talked to a lot of of people who who think in their abusing of their wives, or they're taking advantage of other people, or they're belittling of other members of their congregation. They think that they're doing that that, that in their doing that they're actually keeping God's commands because we have this. Incredible uh, ability to justify our own actions with scripture. Uh, and yeah, s- and exactly. So I propose well, I, that's and, what's going on there.
0: I just, as an aside, too, because in the ancient world, the king was responsible to meet out righteousness, even in his himself, be righteous and, and exercise justice mm-hmm. in the community. That Like, that was very common. So when a king came to power, that was his jurisdiction. So, of course, that's cemented into the Torah. And Israel is supposed to function as a kingship for the whole world. Yeah. And so they're supposed to model that. And so, they're you know, they're, what they did and how they reacted and how they, you know, how justice was implemented in their community was supposed to be a modeling to the rest of the nations of how they were supposed to follow suit. And of course they constantly failed.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Well, and and I think that's why Isaiah has this play on words where there's just one letter difference because you know, what they were doing, they probably thought that they were following the Torah, but when, and this is the thing with the Torah, uh, if you're not following it according to an attempt at righteousness and justice, if you're just simply looking at it as a list of rules, what can go, or you know, what, what is supposed to be righteousness and justice for your nation and for all the nations can easily turn into bloodshed and the, the widow's cries, is what this word sa'aka means. It's the, the cry yeah. of the woman whose who's husband has been murdered. Yeah. Uh, so,
0: and, you know, well, no, just as uh, quickly, I mean, the, these play on words are very important. You know, they're put in there for a purpose to draw our attention either to two things that are completely opposite or to things, you know, to cement something that's the same.
1: Yeah. So with this in mind, this is what was going on in Isaiah's day, right? That all of Israel was messing up. And then we go back to, to to the parable that you were discussing, Dina, the parable of the tenants. And here, this vineyard is producing. Right? So, so it seems like Israel has taken a turn for the better, but now the problem is is what? Is that it, it's not that the, the vineyard's not producing, it's that the people in charge of the vineyard are not allowing the fruits to get out and do what they're supposed to do. The vineyard is ready. It's ready to actually produce righteousness and justice, but the people in charge are doing something different with the, with the harvest.
0: Yeah, and this, we see the same thing in Jeremiah, I can't remember, was it 23, somewhere in there, talking about the good fruit and the bad fruit, and mm-hmm. laying, you know, before, again, but the fruit that it's talking about is what the the leadership is producing. Yeah. It wasn't so much the people, but the leadership was producing bad fruit and not and because of it not feeding or caring for the people. I mean, it's just the same thing over and over and over again.
1: Mm-hmm. So, it. it... I like the how they have these two parables. I like that we were able to discuss them together because this first parable, the parable of the two sons I'm going to propose to you, nails down what, how it is that they're not producing, how it is that the, this leadership is, is really messing up. So I'll read the, I'll read the parable here. It says, what do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and and said the same thing. And that that son answered, I will go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? And they said, the first. Yeshua said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. I I just I have to laugh because I can just envision the faces of them when he says that word tax collectors and prostitutes. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine like this well respected teacher? You you think about think about like maybe uh, whoever you know you you utterly respect as a religious leader, or, or at least you see a lot of other people like legitimately respect, maybe you don't respect, you know, they probably didn't respect him. Uh, come up to you and say like, you know, the, uh, (laughs) the drug addicts (laughs) and, uh, the, the, you know, whoever will enter the kingdom of heaven before you is like, Oh, and shock value there.
0: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So, well, and that's what these parables are designed to do.
1: Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> you, you look at the contrast. You have one who says, "I will go and and do this. Go work in the vineyard." And what was the work in the vineyard? The work in the vineyard is not the the uh, the ritual aspects of the Torah. Those things no. are important, of course. But and and this is the thing that you know the Mishnah has really. Uh, lit up for us is we see this hyper emphasis on ritual purity and ritual purity in and of itself is is not something that's bad it's it's not something that Yeshua was against the problem is is that when you're solely focused on ritual purity and you have no concern for moral purity to the point that you are acting immoral in order to maintain your ritual purity you've lost the whole point. You turned what's supposed to be righteousness and justice into bloodshed and an outcry.
0: And that, you know, when I, as I'm reading these scholars, you know, talking about the, the days of Noah, they're, they're saying really the same thing, that it was the loss of moral and ethical purity. Mm. Not, you know, not a, it wasn't the ritual purity that brought, you know, the reset. Form, yeah. But the, but the loss of moral and ethical purity. Once again, we see that, and I would submit that this idea of violence over the world was again dealing with the corrupt leadership
1: yeah it it was just kind of brought me into mind like the like you know at least portrayals of the Middle Ages in Europe with the Catholic Church where they were so hyper em- emphasizing all of their rituals and stuff, and yet morally they're corrupt and it 's almost like you know if you don't if you hyper emphasize time any human being hyper emphasizes the rituals uh the purity stuff everything like that when you hyper emphasize those things the morals go to the wayside because you've you've established those things as the most important thing in life
0: yeah it's almost they're being worshiped as god <laughs> yeah.
1: and and so you know? <laughs> and so yeshua says the tax collectors and the prostitutes the people who are like the worst in the chain of ritual purity right prostitutes are, are defiling their bodies and tax collectors are taking the money that, that should go to the temple in, in some people's mindsets and giving it to the Romans who were pigs. <laughs> right?
0: Yeah, and these two classes, you know, there's about 15 different classes of people in the first century. Mm-hmm. And they're not quite at the bottom, but they're pretty close. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So-, so compared to where these guys are. Yeah. bottom of it.
1: And you look at the the contrast here. The the one says son says no I will not go. That to for a son to tell his father I will not do this is is very dishonorable. It's a very shaming act. And yet ultimately, even though he's shamed his father, He actually goes and does, he actually is obedient. He actually goes and does what his father ultimately wants him to do, which is what? Righteousness and justice, actually going out and making the world a better place for the other people in in God's world. Uh, Whereas the other son, he pays lip service to his father. He honors his father by saying, I will go, and adds in, sir. Uh, Oh, I just caught on to that. The first son says, I will not. He doesn't add, sir. In there, like <laughs> <All right>, Cordia <laughs> Lord, um, whereas the the second son, he's very respectful. He he has the utmost honor and respect for his father, but he refuses to ultimately go and do what's what's being done here. So we see this contrast of like honor and shame, and and the people who who are all about honoring God through what they say. And again, this this goes back to these. Having this appearance through rituals and things like this of of uh, being a good believer i'm gonna say i'm gonna say being a good Christian being a good Jew, being a good whatever you identify yourself with, but when it ultimately comes down to it you're just playing lip service and i I look at our our community today, which is very diverse but a lot of people that i interact with uh, and i i would venture to say a lot of them that are the, the same as the people that you interact with identify themselves as uh, torah observant torah pursuant whatever the 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 word is that they want to use and unfortunately there's a there's a subgroup within there that is has become very anti Church very anti christian and reflecting on it and, and and having talked to some of these people uh, i i've oftentimes pointed out you know the Christ, you know serious Christians and realizing there's a lot of chris people who identify as Christian who only go to church on the holidays, but we're talking about the the church- the Christians that go to church every day uh the the issue that that they have a lot of them with them is that these Christians will say, I will not keep the Torah. Because this is kind of how they've been programmed to say, is we don't keep the Torah because that's what they've been taught all their life. And yet, if you actually break down the commandments in the Torah, the majority of the observable commandments, they actually are keeping. Even though they say they will not do them. Right, right. (laughs) So it's almost like we've got this scenario here about a son who says he will not... But then goes out and does them anyways. And on the flip side, there've, there've been people who I've met who are very pro-Torah, you know, everything is Torah, Torah, Torah. It's all about the commandments. And yet when you look at their lifestyle, they're they're bitter people, they're angry people, they're always fighting with other people. They're they're very isolated because of this lack of justice and righteousness, this lack of loving their neighbor as themselves. And it just yeah, I mean I, to me it just brings up this whole parable. <laughs> you
0: know? Yeah, no. I think that I think that's good. And you know, what hit me about it as you're talking is this you know, are you in the I, you know, are you in the saying crowd, or are you in the doing mm-hmm. crowd? And I have You know, I've taken some heat on this because I've been pretty active, um, you know, in what's been going on the last eight or nine months. And, of course, you know, I have that organization, On Fire Prayer. And, uh, you know, it's been a fabulous bunch of people that just are dedicated and committed. But when I, you know, when I see something going on, I send out, you know, marching orders. Mm -hmm. And most of them, you know, do it. Because I have, you know, you come to that place where you go, I mean, I can sit in my house and pray all day long and, you know, I can follow, like you're saying, all the rituals and blah, blah, blah. But what am I doing to actually do anything and affect anything and make a difference? And, you know, I'm I'm a big believer in you got to do both. You know, your word is your bond and then you've got to go out and you've got to do something. Yeah. And so I think we're seeing the contrast, too, in in, in these sons. And just, I, I think, too, this, this parable also has, a, you know, a political dimension to it, because as I said before, your average person did not have a vineyard, okay? So they went to work in the vineyard. Most of the people listening to that, you know, maybe they, you know, were, were day workers or something like that, but the vineyard was owned by the king. And it was generally attached to his palace, mm-hmm. and so now we have the two sons, potential heirs, you know, to the throne. And, and in light of you know what I've just been sharing about the patrilineal aspect of the of the of the vineyard, so that's kind of interesting too. Yeah, uh, in in their in their response, how they go- how would how would they how would each of these sons govern in their father's place? Like, which one mm-hmm. do you want ruling over you?
1: Yeah. Yep. And I think we see. <laughs> I don't know if I should go there, but <laughs> <laughs> tread
0: uh, gently.
1: <laughs> I I would honestly be. I, I think there's a lot of. I'll just say this. I think within the 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 community of believers in the God of Israel, who do our best to try to to bring forward his Torah for today. Uh, I think we've got a lot of work to do before we're ready for any sort of uh, ownership and leadership of a vineyard. Uh, There is, there's a lot, uh, it's a lot more than just saying, Hey, hey, we got to keep the commandments. It's learning how to actually properly govern people without, uh, without crushing them, you know? And it's like, I don't know. You know, I I see just so many times. There's so much anger and animosity, and you know, I, I was uh, I was a friend of mine posted something that was uh, on Facebook that was pretty. Con- I mean, it's it's controversial. Uh, it's a controversial subject. I won't go into what it is, but just I mean, like I, I I didn't even I didn't even watch it. It was like a podcast he did with someone else. I didn't even I hadn't even listened to it or watched it. I just looked at the comments. And it was just, it, I mean, it, it was nasty. Like mm. it, it's just this attempt to shut him down immediately without any sort of discussion. And I'm sitting here thinking, you guys are complaining that Facebook is censoring uh, your political posts, and yet you're trying to do the exact same thing. I mean, yeah. it, if if there was a uh, you know a, a Messianic Hebrew roots book, <laughs> you know, Facebook sort of thing, how many posts would be Ooh. censored and shut down? Ooh because yeah. they don't align with what we believe if we want to have open discussion we've got to have be willing to say you know what i'm not going to just shut it down immediately i'm going to actually explore this
0: yeah well not too many are prepared to do that so ultimately what <laughs> we've talked about quite a bit the torah is the personification of wisdom mm-hmm. given to the king so that he can govern his community yeah and so how he governs you don't you know and you know awful well because you got five boys you every circumstance or you know, any situation that re- re- requires discipline you don't do it the same way every time exactly you use wisdom and guidance to tell you what's gonna work in this situation and what's gonna work in that situation yeah so I think that kind of goes back to that parable too. you know what what would what would have worked best with these two sons in this situation, and how did they respond?
1: Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, I, I have, you know, uh, <laughs> when he first made that statement, I was like, "Ooh, that one's that one's going to be a little bit controversial." But it's like the more I've matured, and the more I've I've just kind of looked at how does how do we take Torah forward to today? Absolutely, you, you, to 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 try to implement the Torah as a as a as a rule book simply doesn't work it's got to be on a basis of wisdom and be able to figure out how does it work for this person but this person's to be different because they're a different person different situation yeah
0: yeah and nt wright had a a quote don't remember where i read it um i but i i stole it in one of my teachings (laughs) but uh he said you know uh, the bible the bible is it's not a dictionary it's not an atlas it's not an encyclopedia you know it's not commentary, you know, we, we put it all in those boxes and then we extrapolate Mm,
1: out,
0: you know, if it's an atlas, then we're, you know, we'll look at it in a certain way or whatever. But, you know, again, it's the, it is the wisdom of all the ages, yeah. (laughs) you know, and if we can just focus on it in that way, uh, and, and what better time now, you know, to be able to exercise that I mean, you see by the policies that uh, rulers, leaders, and kings, or whatever,
1: <laughs> governors. implement.
0: Governors. I didn't want to say that.
1: <laughs> hey, there's governors in the Bible.
0: <laughs> okay, uh, there are governors, yeah. <laughs> but when they govern according to wise counsel, which, again, we talk about the Torah being the, really the whole Bible is, personifies that kind of wisdom and common sense to be able to govern people. And then you see them operate, I mean, you don't even understand, I don't even personally understand the core from which they're operating to come to these conclusions and these policies. And then you see the fruit. That's the key, the fruit of those policies that crush, just what you were talking about a few minutes ago. Mm -hmm. Like the things we do and how we operate should never be crushing anybody. (laughs) It's supposed to be giving life and that's how you know that what you're doing when you're when what you're doing is bringing life to others then you know you know you're operating the will of the lord
1: mhm yeah absolutely i i think that's that's so key and that's that's where we got to focus our keeping of the commandments are they bringing life to others exactly. not not just to ourselves but to others yeah
0: yes really others before ourselves
1: yeah all right, wow.
0: that was good. Yeah,
1: it was, was a very fun conversation. We'll have to do so this more we'll, often. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah, we will. We promise we'll do it more often. So next time, this will be a, the same format we do next time. Uh, we'll each pick a a parable, a parable, parable, and we'll discuss it and uh you know compare and contrast. So. Yeah. We hope you've uh, enjoyed this, and and we hope that you're starting to view the parables in a different light, and we hope your paradigm is shifting.
1: Amen. We'll see you guys next time. Shalom. Shalom. Shalom.